Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 27. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make, into, make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abraham and his son were circumcised, 
and all the men of the house, born, all of those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word for us today. Yeah, it's good to be worshiping with you this morning. And as we begin our meditation on Genesis chapter 17 this morning, I want to begin by asking a few questions. The first is, have you ever been wrong about God? Have you ever thought that God was one way only to find out that he's not like that at all? Have you ever thought that you were doing God's will or you knew God's will and you were living according to his will only to find out at some point, that's not what God wanted from me at all? And maybe the most important question is, how do you respond when you realize that you're wrong about God? I can honestly say that there have been more than one occasion where I have been wrong about God. And I often find myself praying this prayer, God, what are you really like? What is your will really for me? And God, please help me not to be deceived about you from my culture, even my Christian culture. Help me to know the truth about who you are and who you want me to be. It can be humbling to realize that you've been wrong about God, but it is also super exhilarating to have a sense that you are slowly but surely tapping into the true reality of who God is, and to know that you are in step with him as you walk through life. This has to be one of the greatest experiences that we can have as human beings. And this is what we want to see this morning in the story of Abraham. God wants to bring us with him along in the way with him and following him and knowing that we are walking with him. In Genesis chapter 17 today, we see God is going to take Abram to a whole new place. God continues to reveal and advance his promises and plans to Abram, but he also has to course correct Abraham a little bit today. But by the end of the chapter, he has a new name and a new direction in life. And what we'll see is our big idea for today. God has a very specific plan to bless us and the world, and we must align ourselves with God to be a part of it. So let's walk through this passage a little bit together, try to understand what the text says, and then we'll step back and try to think about how it applies to our life a bit. The passage unfolds in five parts. A new command, a new name, a new sign, another new name, and a renewed obedience. So let's begin with a new command in verses 1 and 2. Now chapter 17 picks up Abraham, it says very clearly in verse 1, when he was 99 years old. This is important. God first appeared to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, we read then, when he was 75 years old. And then over the next 10 years, he moves to the land of Canaan, and four more times God appears with him, culminating in chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with him. That's what Carl preached on uh, two weeks ago. Now for the next 14 years, we have no record of God appearing to Abraham. And I want to suggest that this may have been a very dry and difficult time in his life. 
particularly because of the events that happened in chapter 16 that we looked at last week that Ron preached on. If you remember, being disappointed with God not giving them children, Sarai had come up with a plan to have a child through her servant, Hagar. And Abraham went along with this. But this had caused a great deal of strife and pain between Sarai and Hagar, so much so that Hagar ran away because Sarai was so harsh to her. God himself had to step in and encourage Hagar to go back to Sarai and submit to her. And we can only imagine that there was a heightened deal of contention and stress in this blended family. Abram, Sarai, Hagar, and then Ishmael were living together in the same home for 14 long years. God did not appear. This may be why Abraham fell on his face in verse 3. We do not read of him doing this before when God had appeared to him. He may have been longing to hear from the Lord And when the Lord finally does appear, Abram is so overwhelmed it knocks him flat. Abram's response may also have been due to the new command God gave him in verse 1, to walk before him and be blameless. Now up to this point, God had only given three commands to Abram. In chapter 12, he had said, one, go, and two, be a blessing. And then in chapter 15, he had just commanded Abram to fear not. But this new command seems to call Abram to new heights and raises the expectations that God had for him. The command to walk before me reminds us of Enoch earlier in the book of Genesis who walked with God and was not because God took him. Or of Noah who walked with God and was blameless and God protected him and his family from the worldwide destruction of the flood. Whatever, whatever this means exactly, it seems that it's an invitation from God to Abram to have a more intimate relationship with him. An open relationship in which Abram lives his life in God's presence, always remembering that God is near and avoid trying to live a hidden or secret life from God. It's a beautiful invitation that reminds us of Jesus' call to us to abide in him and walk in the light with him. It's only by living in this way that Abraham can fulfill the second part of the command, to be blameless. Now this word can mean to be perfect, faultless, complete, or whole. Maybe the best sense is to walk in integrity before me. But again, this makes clear the Lord's ultimate goal for Abram, which is also his goal for us as well, because Jesus repeated this in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 2, God seems to suggest that the fulfillment of the covenant depends on Abraham's obedience to this new command when he says this, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, we often speak of the unconditional nature of God's covenant with Abraham, and it is certainly true that Abraham did nothing and could do nothing to secure God's promises to him. We remember Abraham in a deep sleep 
in chapter 15 when God appeared and walked through the sacrificial animals to make his covenant with Abram. However, God's covenant with Abraham was meant to produce something in Abram. An open walk before him and a growing perfection. And it's the same with us in our salvation as well. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works his will in you. Now it is by grace we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace we have been saved through faith that not of ourselves, it's, it's a gift of God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. But this grace is designed to produce something in us. As Ephesians 2, 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Just as Abram was not saved because he was perfect, but he was saved to be perfect. As we will see in the rest of this chapter, he's not there yet. There's still some rough edges that need to be smoothed out. But this is what God reveals as his goal for Abram. So it's the reality of this new command that may have flattened Abram in verse 3. And then God continues to speak to him and give him a new name. That's the second part here, a new name in verses 3 to 8. Now in these verses, the Lord advances and increases his promises to Abraham. Up to this point, God had had promised to bless Abraham with many descendants. He'd promised to give them the land of Canaan. But now he expands these promises to not just include many descendants, but many nations. This is the logic of the new name. And Abraham, the name Abraham, seems to mean something like a father of many nations. And notice in verse 6 that God adds that kings will come from Abram. This idea of kings anticipates one of Abraham's descendants, David, who would become a king and God would enter into what we know as the Davidic covenant and promise that this line of kings would continue until the ultimate king of kings would reign on his throne forever. Now verse 7 is very important as God makes clear he wants to establish his covenant not just with Abraham, but also with Abraham's children. Notice it says, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. The idea of an everlasting covenant means that God sees no end in sight for this covenant. He doesn't expect it to end. And notice what the essence of this covenant is at the end of verse 7. To be God to you and your offspring after you. This is what God wants. To be known, loved, honored, and served as their God. In order that this covenant will be remembered and continued, the Lord establishes a new sign of the covenant. That's our third part this morning, a new sign in verses 9 to 14. Now in these verses, the Lord calls Abraham and all his male descendants to keep his covenant by being circumcised in their flesh. As verse 11 says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And verse 13 continues, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. A little play on words there. So for those who want to be part of this covenant, the Lord has made with Abraham, they must 
be circumcised. It's not optional. It's mandatory. Otherwise, you'll be cut off from God's people. Now, this language is so strong, we can see why this was such a point of contention in the early church. When many in the, in the early church thought that the Gentiles who believed in Christ needed to be circumcised to be a part of the people of God. However, the New Testament is clear that the new covenant is no longer in our flesh, but in the flesh and blood of Christ. And it's the Lord's Supper that we're going to participate in a little bit that is the sign of the new covenant in which we remember and partake of his body and his blood shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. Now some might ask, why did God choose circumcision as the sign of the old covenant? I don't know that I can answer that completely, but it is interesting that very quickly, Moses himself begins to speak of the spiritual significance of circumcision. Remember, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he wrote Genesis, the first five books of the Old Testament, and Moses even begins to talk about a, a, a symbolism of circumcision, so to speak. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses tells the people to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. An interesting phrase, circumcise your heart. So the idea of a, let's see here, I turned the wrong page. <laughs> so the idea of a stubborn, uncircumcised heart, even for those who were physically circumcised, is here pictured. Now later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses prophesies of a day when the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when, when a thousands of years later he would say in Romans 2, 28 and 29, which, which uh, Ron read in our call to worship this morning, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision will eventually become a symbol of a new heart in which God's spirit cuts away the stubbornness and hardness of sin and replaces this with love for God. This is what we call regeneration. This is what it means to be born again. But nonetheless, we go back to Genesis chapter 17, and this act was to be continued by Abraham's descendants throughout the generations as a reminder of God's covenant to them. Now, you may ask, what about women and the female descendants of Abraham? Were they included in this covenant? This brings us to the fascinating next section in verses 15 to 21, another new name. Another new name. In these verses, the Lord, for the first time in recorded scripture, directly includes Sarai in these promises to Abraham. And the same promises that he had just made to Abraham to become nations and to have kings come from him, he now repeats to Sarai, and he also gives her the same kind of name change that he gave to Abraham. 
to signify that this promise is for her too. Now this causes Abraham again to fall on his face, probably in shock, and he laughs. And he starts asking questions in his mind as to whether he can, this can be true for a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. They had long since passed the age when they could handle diapers and the sleepless nights. <laughs> that season had passed. That ship had sailed, or at least that's what they thought. And although the text doesn't say this, I can imagine Abraham thinking something like this. Lord, we're past the baby stage, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but 14 years ago, Sarah came up with a really ingenious plan. When you hadn't given her any children, she wanted to have a child for us through Hagar, her servant. And it worked. Kind of. It has caused a great deal of conflict and tension in our house, but... We've all kind of settled into our different roles and accepted the fact that Ishmael is my heir. I think this is kind of what Abraham means when he says in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I love verse 19. God said, No. <laughs> no, I know that's your plan, Abraham, but that's not my plan. Never has been my plan, and it never will be. He goes on to say, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God's going to continue his covenant through Sarah, his wife's son. Now this drops like a bomb on this passage, and it obviously shocks Abraham. It shows us that Abraham... The father of faith, the man who had believed God and it had been reckoned to him as righteousness, was wrong about God. I love the realistic portrayal of the heroes in the Bible. Abraham and the Lord were not on the same page about Sarah or about marriage. To God, Sarah and Abraham's marriage to Sarah were crucial and indispensable to his covenant with Abraham. But to Abraham... Sarah was incidental, and he thought that having a son through Hagar was just fine. For about 14 years now, he had been assuming that all of God's promises to him would be passed on through Ishmael. And he had obviously grown to love his, his son. In fact, if we go back to the incident in Egypt in chapter 12, we see that the same kind of thinking was present when Abram told Sarai to just say that he was his sister so that things would go well for him. You remember that? He may not have been too concerned when Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's household, and he certainly benefited financially from it. Maybe he thought that he could just remarry, and God would fulfill his blessings to him with another wife. But again, God miraculously stepped in to rescue Sarai, remove her from Pharaoh's house, and reunite her with Abraham. That was the first hint that Sarai was essential to God's plan. His intention to bless Abraham and his descendants always included Sarah. And it seems to take Abraham a while to fully understand and embrace this. So even though God's communications and promises have been with Abraham up to this point, this passage makes clear that he has been intending all along to fulfill these promises through Sarah and no other wife or no other woman will do. 
This really shows us God's high, high view of marriage and of women. As God said in chapter 2, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This was God's idea. And this is reflective of the oneness in the Trinity itself between the Father and the Son, who Jesus would later say, the Father and I are one. The sacredness of marriage and the indissoluble union that happens is the vehicle that God is going to use to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and bring blessing into the world. But what about Ishmael and Hagar? They didn't do anything wrong. They are the innocent victims of Abram and Sarai's lack of faith in God. Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for those who don't have the ideal marriage or the ideal family relationships? Verses 20 to 21 show God's great grace and mercy in the mixed-up relationships with Hagar and Ishmael, that there is blessing for them. God says he's going to bless Ishmael. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to have many descendants. He's going to have 12 princes. But he maintains that his covenant will be, will be passed on through Isaac. We'll see later that when Sarah does have a son, she wants Hagar and Ishmael sent away. This will again cause even greater pain for Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. And their story definitely is a tragic one within the narratives of Abraham. However, the Lord does promise to bless Ishmael as he had already promised Hagar. And it's interesting that even many of Ishmael's descendants today still claim Abraham as their father. But that is a whole other story. For now, God's covenant is going to pass on through Sarah. And Abraham accepts this as God's plan for him. He doesn't try to fight God or question him. Rather, he obeys him. And that is what we see in the fifth part of our passage this morning, a renewed obedience, a renewed obedience. Abraham had to be rocked by these revelations, and he would have to readjust his thinking and his plans that had developed over the last 14 years. There is a change ahead for him, and this is what we call repentance. But he is sticking with the Lord, and he wastes no time in obeying his commands to circumcise himself and all the males in his household, As verse 23 says, he did it that very day. This is the attitude and action of a man of faith. He may not understand everything about God. He may be wrong about God at some times. But whatever he does know about God, he acts upon immediately. And if the Lord asks him to do anything, he is going to do it. He did this because he understood our big idea for today. God has a very specific plan to bless us and the world. We must align ourselves with him to be a part of it. So now that we've taken a look at the text, let's just step back and think about how this big idea applies to our lives today. The first thing I'd like to say this morning is that God's specific plan for us is to live in covenant with him. I don't know if you know this or not, but Genesis 17 is hugely important in the Bible, primarily because of this idea of of God's covenant being established with Abraham and being passed on through generations. 
Many Christian traditions look to this chapter as a basis for infant baptism in the example of circumcision. Now, we're Baptists here, and so we don't see infant baptism in this passage. Frankly, we don't see it anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, we all agree on the idea of covenant. God is a God of covenant, and he wants us to be a covenant people. This is a central theme in the Bible. Our Bibles themselves are divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's really what the word testament means. So what does it mean for us to be covenant people and God to be a covenant God? The first thing it means is this. God has solemnly promised himself to us, and he invites us to solemnly promise ourselves to him. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The words solemnly promise are maybe the closest we can come to the idea of covenant. God has initiated with us in this covenant, and apart from his initiation, we have no hope of such relationship with him. Like God passing through the sacrificial animals to establish his covenant with Abraham while Abraham was asleep, so Jesus has passed through death on the cross to the resurrection while we were asleep in our sin. God has demonstrated his great love for us in sending his son Jesus to rescue us and to give his life as a ransom for us. And Jesus' promise to forgive us our sins is sealed in his body and his blood given for us on the cross. He made very plain that this is the new covenant he initiated and this is what we remember and will remember shortly in the communion table. Now when we hear this gospel message about what Jesus has done, we are faced with the question, what will I do? How will I respond to Jesus? And Jesus calls us to respond in kind. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and through 16 says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but we should live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. This is what it means to enter into covenant with God, to live no longer for ourselves, but for him. I think the best picture we have of this covenant relationship is marriage. And the essence of marriage is a solemn vow between one man and one woman for life. I remember my vows to my wife, Lisa, very well. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. There is no more solemn, sacred vow than that that we share as human beings. And when two people enter into this covenant, something extraordinary happens. The two become one flesh. What exactly this means, it's hard to put in words, but at a minimum, there are no longer two individuals living two separate lives, but somehow the two are now living as one. Paul says this mystery is great, and it is this mysterious union of marriage that pictures Christ's love for the church. 
And what happens when we enter into covenant with Jesus is that we become one with him. We no longer live as an individual, but as one with Christ. This is God's plan for us, to be covenant people, to view our lives as one with him in Jesus. Now, just like in marriage, something is to be produced in this covenant relationship, the fruit of marriage is typically children, and the fruit of our union with Christ is ideally children of faith. This leads us to the second thing it means to be in covenant with God, and that is God makes us fruitful. Notice again Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. God promises, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. The concept of fruitfulness is a central theme throughout Scripture. Did you know that the very first thing God spoke to humankind was this in Genesis 128? Be fruitful. Now we know originally in Genesis he was talking about uh, producing physical descendants. And here in, in, in Genesis chapter 17, God is going to multiply Abraham's descendants and enter into covenant with them so that he can establish his covenant and fill the earth with the knowledge of him. But Jesus takes the idea of fruitfulness even further. And in John chapter 15, he, he develops this idea and he makes it essential to being a disciple in covenant with him. Notice what he says in John 15, 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Jesus goes on to teach that we must abide in him so that we can bear fruit. And then he makes this important statement in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Two incredible truths here, right? The first is that this is how God the Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. Now, I don't know if you're like me. Some of you have memorized the Westminster Catechism. I haven't memorized the whole thing, but I've memorized the first question. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? It's another way of saying, what is the purpose of man? And the answer in the catechism is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's a beautiful statement, but I always ask myself the question, what does it mean to glorify God? And Jesus answers that question here. By this is my Father glorified. When you bear much fruit, and this is how you prove to be my disciple. Now, another question that rises here is, what does it mean to bear fruit? Sometimes we can have complex answers to this question, but I believe it means something like this. Loving God and others in such a way that some other people will want to enter into covenant with God too. We know that love is the fruit of the Spirit and all the entailments of love, right? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. And when we as Christians bear this kind of fruit, we shine as a bright light in a dark World. And Jesus wants us to shine our light and bear this fruit so that others who see us will be drawn to him and want to be part of that light too. Can we have any doubt that Jesus wanted the 12 disciples to bear this kind of fruit in the world and to multiply what he had begun in them? And isn't it amazing that millions of people from all over the world today, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, 
profess Jesus as their Lord. And it started with Jesus and just 12 men. So what about you? Are you bearing fruit? Do others see your love for God? Do others see your love for them? And because of your example, do they want that kind of relationship with God? Do you understand that God's purpose for you as a covenant believer is to bear fruit? He will make you fruitful if you align yourself with him. And this leads to our second and final application point here. To experience God's blessing, we must humbly align ourselves with him. In our passage today, Abraham and Sarah were wrong about God and his plan for them for about 14 years. They were trying to find his blessing and fulfill his plan in their own way. When God confronted and corrected Abraham about this, he had to be humble enough to repent and align himself with God. And this would have included admitting that he and Sarah had been wrong in what they had done. Now, misunderstanding God is what we do, right? We're good at that. We live in a world of lies about God, and our own hearts are deceitful and can lead us astray. So we should not be surprised or shocked when it becomes clear that we have been wrong about him or his plans for us. The key is being humble enough to admit our deceptions and change our minds about him. Unfortunately, this is not the way we often respond when confronted with the truth about God. Instead, we often go in one of two different ways. The first being, we try to change God. A recent article by Catherine Nixie in The Economist was entitled, The Church of England's God is Becoming More Liberal. Traditionalists should brace themselves for more change. The main focus of the article was how many church denominations are changing their views about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And this issue is heating up in the Church of England and will come up for a vote in 2022. And so the pressure is on the church to conform to the spirit of the age. As Nixie says, the evidence is clear. God is becoming more liberal. So for many... When we read uncomfortable truths about God in the Bible, instead of changing our views, we think we can change God. We may not say that we're changing God. We may not say that we're changing the Bible, but we just try to reinterpret it to make it say what we want it to say. Another way people may respond when they find out the truth about God is that they reject God. This may actually be a bit more honest than trying to change God, but it is a travesty nonetheless. So what often happens when people deconstruct their faith. Now, deconstruction can mean different things to different people, and I know it's not always a negative rejection of God, but it often starts with questioning God's existence or his goodness. Many times we can have a crisis of faith when we begin to realize that we have been taught or believed things about God that are not true. The other crisis is when we know the truth about God, but we're not sure we like who he is or that we can trust him. Maybe we have an LGBTQ friend or close family member, and we can't accept God's view of their behavior as sin. Maybe we don't want to accept a God who calls for wives to submit to their husbands, 
or prohibits women to teach and exercise authority over men in the church. Maybe we can't accept a God who judges unrepentant sinners in a place called hell. Maybe there's something we want God to do for us and he just doesn't seem to be doing it. Maybe we just don't want to have to deny ourselves and follow him in obedience, but we would rather do whatever we want to do. Whatever the case may be, we all have times in our lives when we are confronted with who God really is and what he is really calling us to do. Like Abraham wasn't always right about God, sometimes we feel that as well. But when Abraham understood who God was, he humbled himself enough to change his own ideas and ways and align himself with God. Then he experienced God's blessing in his life. And this is God's call to us today. It requires a humble attitude that admits, God, I may be wrong about you. Some of the truths about you may be difficult for me to accept, but you are the one true God, and I have no other hope besides you. And I will humble myself and change whatever I need to align myself with you. This, was, this attitude was exemplified by the disciples in John 6, 67 and 68, when many of those who had been following Jesus, turned, the Bible says they turned away from him and they stopped following him because some of the things Jesus said were hard to accept. And we want to be clear this morning, some of the things Jesus says are hard to accept, right? Some of the things that the Bible teaches are hard for us to accept, But in the gospel, in John chapter 6, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I love Peter's answers. Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the humble faith required to follow Jesus. It can be very disquieting, even painful when confronted with the idea that we've misunderstood God, maybe even for decades. Just as Abraham had begun to place his hopes of God's blessing in Ishmael, so we often have misplaced hopes in the results of our own plans and our own thoughts. And when we are confronted with the reality that our plans and thoughts aren't God's plans and thoughts, this can result in a crisis of our faith. But do you really think your plans are better than God's plans. When we try to change God or we reject him, it is ultimately our pride of thinking that we know better than God. This kind of pride is evident in the rejection of God all around us in the world today, oftentimes in the church itself. And pride is the ultimate sin that leads always to death and destruction. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, this attitude before God is so important for us to understand. As Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Think of that. To be exalted by God himself. That's the goal. 
That's what we want in our life. We want to know that we're walking in step with him and that he has our back. He will exalt us. I cannot imagine anything more thrilling than that. But this only comes when we're willing to humbly align ourselves with God. This is what it means to be in covenant with God. He's a covenant God, and he calls us to be covenant people. And that's really what the table this morning is all about. This is the new covenant in his blood. Just as God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, so he's given us the sign of communion, which we remember his body and his blood.